you can turn there to the book of First Timothy. That's where we're going to be again today. And as you're turning there, if we were to take the book of First Timothy and say, what is this book about? There's really one verse that encompasses Paul's intentions for writing to Timothy, and that is in, in chapter 3, verse 15, and it's up there incorrectly. I'll let me read it to you since I put it up there wrong. It says this, if I am delayed, Paul says, if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in the household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of truth. Simply put, what what Paul is saying as he's writing to Timothy here is if you want to know what a healthy church is, if you want to know what a healthy church is, um, you can you can look here within this letter. Now today we're finishing up chapter one, and chapter one is really just a long introduction to the entirety of the book. When we move into chapter two, we get to some of the specifics of what it means. And last week specifically, we talked about uh, Paul. We looked at Paul. We looked at Paul's life. We examined how Paul approached his Christian walk uh, with the freedom that is found in Christ and the reverence for his faith. This week, we're going to specifically look at the call that Paul is directing towards Timothy. So let's, let's open in prayer, and then we'll jump right in. Father, we thank you for this time of year. We thank you for the opportunity to come together as your family, your church, uh, to lift your name up. Lord, we come together to submit ourselves to your word, to submit ourselves to one another's influence in one another's lives. And um, we, take this, we take this role very seriously, very soberly, and very joyfully at the same time. And we pray for every, every person in here that uh, they would know and experience the love that is only found in you and expressed through the work of Jesus at work in us. And uh, we thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. About 15 years ago, I was a youth pastor and we were holding a youth retreat just over the hill at, at Royal Ridges. Actually, we were staying up at Anderson Lodge and Cougar, if you're familiar with that, but we, we wanted to come down and take the students, there was about 50 of them, through the ropes course and the paintball course. And so we brought these students down, and the way that the leadership at Royal Ridges wanted to do it is they wanted to break up into two groups to make them more manageable. So we had about 50-50 split. So there's 25 guys, 25 gals. The guys went first to the ropes course and the girls went to the paintball course, and the way that our staff worked out, we had more guy staff than girl staff, and so um, I drew the short star and had to go with the girls in, into the paintball course, and just to be honest with you, I was, I know this doesn't sound right, I was a little disappointed that um, I was going to miss out on the war with the guys during the paintball course. So anyway, that's all right, you kind of just, you just buck up and you do what you got to do. So I go with the gals, and as we go there, if you're not familiar with how paintball works, with paintball, these are basically guns that shoot these little paintballs at 230 feet per second, um, and that's fun. And so that's what people do. And, and when you play these different games, there's all kinds of, they just take, they take a variation of games, like 
hide and seek and tag and some of those different games and they just arm you with those guns. And so one of the games that we, we played, it was the game we started out with, it's called Capture the President or Catch the President or something like that. And it's basically hide and seek. And because I was the only boy there, um, the, the staff said, okay, you, Bill, you're going to go hide and the, the gals are going to come find you. And um, both the way that the game works is I could win one of two ways. Either at the end of the 20 minutes, if they didn't find me, I win. Or I could snipe them and pick them off one at a time and end up knocking all of them out of the game. The way they could win was similar. They would either find me or if they could shoot me, one of those two. And so anyway, the way they sent me off on this game, and I, I kind of debated how, what my strategy was going to be, but I ended up just finding what I thought was the perfect hiding spot, thought there's no way they're going to find me. And within like three minutes, somehow, these middle school and high school gals were like trained in guerrilla warfare, and they had me surrounded, um, completely surrounded. I had not picked off a single one of them, and... Um, and so here they are, they have me surrounded, and the rules of this game is if they find me, all I have to do is raise my gun and my other hand up and say, okay, I surrender, and then the game is over and they win. So here I go, I, I raise my gun and my hand up, I stand out of my, my, um, my hiding spot, and someone, I don't know who to this day, screamed, shoot him. <laughs> and... Just so you know, these aren't single shot paintball guns. They're semi-automatic. So you got 25 aggressive young gals finding a way. I crumpled up like a wet blanket and went down. And, and um, yeah, you laugh, but it was not very funny. Um, the major problem with that, and here is, here is the problem. I assumed that the war was over when I raised my hands. I was obviously wrong. The battle wasn't done in the least at that point in time. A.W. Tozer, let me go here. This is this guy here, uh, one of my favorite writers. Probably have more of his books than any other single author. He, he passed away 50 or 60 years ago. And uh, he said this. He said, people think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. They think we are not here to fight, but we are here to frolic. We are, not here in a foreign, we are not in a foreign land, we are at home. We are not getting ready to live, but instead we're, we're already living. And it is so true, it is, it is so true that um, as a follower of Jesus, that it is easy to slip into the, the temptation of thinking that you know, this is all that there is, that there isn't really a, a battle going on. There isn't really a war going on. Um, and Paul wants to make sure, as he addresses Timothy, as he closes the introduction to this letter to him, that he realizes he is really in a fight. He is really in a battle. And it's not time to put up his hands and, and say, I'm done. But it's a fight. And so today we, we see that. Let's, let's read here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. And it's, oh, there's that verse that I was looking for earlier. All right, I'm not going to mess with it. Listen until I get to the next verse. 
Verse 18 says, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regards to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to, to blaspheme. As we look in here, let's jump back to, to verse 18. And what we see Paul doing here is we see Paul pointing out Timothy's duty. Timothy has a duty here, and his duty is to, to fight. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Let's break this phrase down, this first one down, into, into really two parts. And the first one is we see here a command. It is a command to obey for Timothy. Our culture it's got it wrong in so many senses, but especially in this sense, they have it backwards. We have it backwards oftentimes as it relates to our response to a command. We see a command and we see a duty as something that would be bad or negative. Our culture in its anti-authority mentality says, don't tell me what to do. I'm my own autonomous individual. You ask me to do something, I'm going to pretty much do the opposite. But Paul is saying to Timothy, especially in the midst of the fight in which he is in, he's telling him that you have this opportunity and it's really a command to obey. And and I I like what he says here. He says, "I, I, I entrust this command to you. I place this command within your care. He's basically saying, Timothy, this duty that is upon you is, is an invaluable, incredibly valuable duty. And I would not just allow anyone to carry out this duty, but I entrust this duty to you. And it's similar when, when my wife and I, when we brought, I remember, especially our first child, <laughs> because as you have more children, you're your guard goes down a little bit, maybe. But um, with the first child specifically, we, we walk out of that hospital for the very first time and we take little Liam and set him in a car seat. And I remember making sure that he was strapped in perfectly. And I remember putting him in the center of the car and the seat belt was properly around the, the car seat. I remember all of these things. I, I remember getting in the driver's seat and feeling a great responsibility that I had never felt before in a car. And as I leave the, the, the parking lot and I start to head down the road, I remember for the first time, well not for the first time, but I remember seeing and experiencing the traffic signs like I hadn't seen and experienced them before. And I remember driving uh, incredibly defensively. And as I'm doing this, there's no problem whatsoever obeying those signs. I had no problem at all saying, oh, this is the speed limit. Before, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to that. I had no problem paying attention to the speed limit. I, on the other hand, was I was really frustrated and, and, and angry that other people weren't paying attention. It was not a, an obligation or a duty that I didn't um, appreciate and enjoy because I realized what I had just been entrusted with. I realized this responsibility and this joy that needed to be protected and, and so when it comes to a duty, Paul is saying to Timothy, I entrust this to you. 
I entrust it to you because it is a precious, precious gift that you have as, in, in his case, as an ambassador for, for Jesus to this church in Ephesus. I entrust it to you. So he gives him this command to obey, and yeah, it's his duty, but boy, it's a, it's a great duty to be entrusted with. And if we transition and we look back to what Paul was talking about in, in the book of Romans, chapter 7, you don't have to turn there, but in Romans 7, he, he's, he's talking about, and he's talking to all people, and he says, you know what, all people... All people, and if you're a Christian, this should be your world. It, it should be your worldview because it's the worldview that Scripture puts us. All people, whether they agree to it or not, are um, a slave to one of two masters. All people, a slave to one of two masters. You're either a slave to sin, or you're a slave to obedience. You're a slave to sin, and if you're a slave to sin, the result of that. It leads to death. If you're a slave to obedience, the result of that then leads to to righteousness. Now, look here at verse 17 to close out his thoughts on that. He says, thanks be to God, however, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. It's a joy, Paul is saying to Timothy, and Paul is saying to us, it's a joy to Obey the command in which you have to be an ambassador for this gift, the gospel of Christ. You are entrusted. So this is the first aspect here is that it's a command to obey. And then secondly here, he says, this command is a call. It's a call to answer. This command, I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. First, he, he reminds Timothy of this earlier time. There's an earlier time, and we unfortunately we don't know. We don't know the specific setting. We don't know the specifics of what Paul is talking about. But there was a time earlier, probably before Paul entrusted the church in Ephesus to Timothy, that there was a, in essence, a commissioning service where there was some some that prophesied over him and affirmed him as an ambassador for Christ to, to shepherd this church in Ephesus. And, and so this is what took place. And, and um, I think of three and a half years ago, you as a church did the same for, for us, for me and my family. You entrusted me as you installed me or you called me to come as your, as your pastor. And, and at that service, and I remember this very well because I wrote these three points down and they sit and they're taped above my door as I walk out of my office so I have to see them every day. And this is what you you entrusted to me, and, and there, there was no prophecy that took place, but there was a strong charge that you placed over my, my ministry here, and you said this. I don't know if you can even read that, but um, number one, um, trust that God is enough for me. Trust that God is enough for me. Apart from being a pastor, don't get your identity from, from serving as a pastor. Get your identity found solely in Christ. Trust that God is enough for me, despite if the church is doing well or it's not doing well. God is enough for me personally. Love other people well. I love that you challenged me and put that on me. Because if, if we don't do that well, what do we do? What's the point of any of it? We have to love others well here in this building and outside this building. And then teach us a way to live, not just simply something to believe. This is a, a big one for me as a, as a kid who grew up in, in a setting where it was all about what you know, not so much about how you 
engaged what you know. I appreciated that. But this, this call, when, when things are tough in life and ministry, I just remember, this is like, this is the baseline. This is where, this is where we go. There's a call to answer. And for Timothy, he had this call to answer. And remember, he was having to deal with some, some garbage, some false teaching in the church, some disagreements within his church, in the walls of the church. And, and Paul is reminding him, when you're discouraged, don't forget that you, you've answered that call. Timothy, you're on, the, you're on the phone still. Don't hang up. Keep going. Keep going. So we see this in verse 19, this, this duty to, to fight for the faith. And then secondly, what we see here is Timothy's instructions on fighting well. We'll go back in verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies, the prophecies previously made concerning you that by them you fight the good fight. In verse 19, the first part, it says, keeping faith and a good conscience. Paul is what he does here, and he does it really well as he repeats himself. He repeats a little bit of what went on earlier in verse 5 of chapter 1. He called Timothy. He says, you know, when you're dealing with hardship in your ministry, when you're dealing, remember that the goal of the instruction always is love, love that comes from a pure heart, a sincere faith and a good conscience. And he, he, he kind of reminds him of that just a few verses later here in verse 19. And so this first portion, let's, let's kind of break this down into two components. Um, being kind of a, a sports guy that I am, I think of things in terms of sometimes sports analogies. And so the first one here is the, the instructions of fighting well. The first one, there's a strong offense, a strong offense, keeping of the faith. We'll talk about a good conscience in a moment, but keeping of the faith. And we cannot talk about the offensive nature of the spiritual warfare without first looking at one of the key passages in our Bibles that deals with spiritual warfare, that's Ephesians chapter 6. So if you could, I, don't put, I didn't put it up here on purpose, but turn over to Ephesians chapter 6, keeping your finger in 1 Timothy, if you could turn there real quick. Ephesians chapter 6. Strong offense. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 13, it says this. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of, breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and with all supplication. And to that end, keep alert <coughs> with all perseverance, making supplications for the saints. Our offensive weapons here, um, and really, the, truly, the only one that he kind of points out is the sword, which is an interesting observation there, that the sword is the only one that is really a, a, an offensive weapon. And yet, even with that sword, we can't wield that sword without the presence of his Holy Spirit guiding us and, and making it possible for us even to use it. But 
truly put, as we look here, is the, the offensive weapons that we have, uh, there's nothing apart from the Word of God and prayer. Apart from those two things, it doesn't matter how intelligent we are, it doesn't matter how able-bodied we are, how skillful we are, how strong we are, all of that is useless if we're not committed to humbly and being on our knees with God's word open before us. That's how we successfully fight offensively our battles is through, through committed prayer and commitment to God's word being our guideline and our strength. So that's the offensive side of things. But let's look at the defensive side of fighting a good faith is here this, this good conscience. It's, it really comes down to a solid defensive plan here. And Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Keeping faith and a good conscience. You might have heard the saying, let your conscience be your guide. Let your conscience be your guide. That might be good, and it probably would be good, but only if your conscience is guided by the Lord. If our conscience is guided by other things, which we know that our our consciences are easily hijackable, if that's even a word. They're easily taken from us. John MacArthur says this. He says, a good conscience is the rudder that steers a Christian's life. So true. If we find ourselves... In rough waters in life, it's our conscience that that will guide us through those difficulties oftentimes. And if we choose not to heed the warnings of those things within our lives, then we unfortunately become what we read about shortly here. We become shipwrecked in our faith. Now, hopefully you're back in 1 Timothy. If you are, just flip over just a couple pages to chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. Chapter 4. <laughs> okay, chapter 4, verse 1 says this. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some are going to abandon the faith. Some will abandon the faith and they will follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such things come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Picture here given by Paul is one in which a person, a person's conscience, a person's convictions, they become desensitized to the things of God. This is really due to um, false teaching. It's due to, due to repeated exposure to to cultural content that's not checked, that's not guarded, that's not running through any gospel grid in our heart and in our mind. Um, and, and a person's sense of what is right and what is wrong becomes blurred by compromise to the point where the person can no longer easily distinguish what is right, what's not right, what's good, what's evil, what's pure, what is, what is impure. And, and a practical way of, of really looking at this and... and um, is, is, is it relates to this sense of becoming, becoming desensitized. Um, we see this in so many different ways. So how do you avoid, how do you avoid a, a seared conscience? I mean, this is, to me, one of the more sad passages of Scripture. It talks about people that fall away from the faith and they succumb to, to deceiving spirits and their, their consciences become seared. How do, how do we avoid that? Well, um, oftentimes the best defense the best defense against something like 
that is to know your enemy's offensive strategy. You know, any sporting event, when you get up into higher levels, the coaches are going to they're going to sit you down. You might have your game plan, but you're going you're to watch film of the other team, and you're going to see how the other team plays. And so you're going to try to pick apart what their strategy is so that you know how to defend against what their strengths and what their weaknesses are. It's the same thing within the terms of, the, of, a, of a boxing match, of something along those lines. You, you want to get to know what your, uh, your, your opposition is looking at. And so the best, the best defense sometimes is knowing what the offense is. And so um, we know we have an enemy. We know that our enemy, the enemy to our soul, is looking to, to devour us. And uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, he says that we are not unaware of the fact that Satan is scheming. He's talking actually in the context of unforgiveness. He's saying that, that when Satan is, Satan is scheming to keep us in a place of not forgiving one another because that breeds bitterness and disunity and it splits churches up. And so Paul says we're, we're not unaware of the fact that he, he schemes. And so I just want to talk about like the 3D view of Satan. This is oversimplified, but I think it's helpful. It's easy for me to remember. So if we look at Satan, what is his offensive game plan for us? When he looks at us, what does he want? Um, first one is he, he wants to deceive. He's all about deception. He does this in a lot of different ways. He's all about deceiving. He's the best of all liars. He's the best of all liars. He can take what is a very good intended situation, twist it, turn it into lies and cause two people that at once loved one another to therefore hate each other moving into the future because he is so good at deception and deceiving people. That's what he, second thing, and that leads to distance. He's a deceiver. He's a deceiver and, and he's all about distancing. First off, distancing us from God. Any way that he can do to to cause a distance between us and the Lord, that's what he wants. And oftentimes the way that he does that is he causes distance between one another. Distance between friends, distance between family, distance between children and parents, spouses, distance between churches and their communities. He's all about distance. That's what he wants to do. Create distance. Because when we get out on an island... And we're only calling our own shots. That's when we, be get, we, we become shipwrecked. Shipwrecked of our faith. We know, John 10.10, 10, our enemy, he comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. That's his goal, which, which leads to the, the last D there. Is, that's his ultimate game. He wants death. He wants relational death, and he wants spiritual death. That's his plan for our life. What a nice guy. Now God, on the other hand, simply put, just to put it, across the aisle. Not about deception, he's about truth. That's what God is all about. He's about truth. He's about connection. Think about it. If we go back into the, into the Garden of Eden, he didn't need us to exist. He exists perfectly on his own, but because of his love, he creates a planet, and he puts us on the planet. He wants to connect with people. Now, we know the story. Um, because of our own um, our own desires, we rebel against him. And so, therefore, breaking that connection. Why? Because the enemy is a deceiver, and he came in and deceived. And so broke that relationship, and now there's not a connection like there once was. And so what does God do? He sends his son into the world that we celebrated in Advent, the coming of Christ. He sends his son into the world to, to redeem that broken 
relationship to bring connection again once and for all between us and him. And that leads to life. That leads to life eternally. It leads to life here and now at the same time. That same passage, the devil, he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus says, I've come that that you might have life. And not just have life skating by, but that you may have life to the fullest. You may have life abundantly. Knowing our, knowing our opposition's offensive strategy against us is a, is a key aspect to our tool in, in fighting him. And we know because, as First Peter says, we are to be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. Thirdly, thirdly, Timothy, he has a warning here. His, his warning is to not falter. Keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hamanaeus, Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Taught not to blaspheme. Shipwrecked faith. Shipwrecked faith. It's, it's sad to know that there are so many people with a shipwrecked faith today. Um, these are those that haven't kept the faith, um, nor are those that have a good conscience. And, and Paul says they've been, therefore, shipwrecked. And what's interesting about this, and a little bit, uh, I really appreciate why it's written this way, shipwrecked in regard to their faith. A person that's shipwrecked in regard to their faith, they might be in the rest of life and feel like life is just fine. The rest of life is just fine. Uh, um, financially, I'm doing well. My career's on track. You know, maybe my family's good. In society, I'm doing just fine. But as it relates to my faith, my faith is shipwrecked. We can be shipwrecked in faith, but everything is just kind of going, going fine. Not always, but sometimes the case, I find it interesting that he puts it there in regard to their faith. Um, but then he moves on. He says, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. He's handed over to, to Satan. And it simply means that those are individuals that are put outside of the church. They're put outside of the church and they're taken away from the protection of the family of God. And remember, he's talking in the context here of false teachers. When, when a false teacher rises up, if they don't respond to the correction of the church quickly, if they don't do that, at that point in time, they need to be put out of the church because there's more detriment to those that are inside of the church. Paul um, does a better job than we might do today at, at naming names. I mean, can you imagine being Hymenaeus or Alexander and you get this letter from the Apostle Paul and you're in it? I mean, that is a pretty significant, a pretty significant notation there that they're in that. But he calls these things out and he puts them outside of the church. And, and I got to tell you, this is something not that we want to practice putting people outside of the church, but it's certainly, if, if the need is there, we need to jump on something like that. And, and um, one of the aspects in church discipline is we always want to, as a church, to seek reconciliation and restoration. This is one of the last steps that we want to have to take is to, to put someone outside of, outside of the church. But we can see it, especially in our, in our culture today, that, that um, is a little bit too soft on too many things. Uh, might say that that's mean, uh, but I'll give you just a personal example of a friend of mine who was a, an active member of a church, um, involved in leadership, and through probably a seared conscience, through not possibly keeping the faith, 
um, slipped into a life of sin, secretly at first, but then um, it, it got exposed and they got put out of the church. Um, they were incredibly angry about this being put out of the church, spent 10 years um, outside of the church, cut off by the church. Uh, the church had tried to bring restoration at the beginning, but when those were not met, um, that person, he just, my friend, just went on and spent 10 years or a little more than that, actually, away from family, away from church. Um, the Lord ended up getting back a hold of him, and he came back repentant to the church, and the church welcomed him back wholeheartedly. But when I was talking with him and I asked him, like, what was it that, what was it that, that, that God used to, to bring you back to faith? And, and his comment was um, isolation and loneliness. I didn't realize how much I needed and wanted love in my life from, from people. Uh, but oftentimes people don't want to cause any separation because they think that's the bad thing to do. But in this particular case, God redeemed that. Um, and, and brought this person to full restoration rather than this kind of wishy-washy, kind of in-the-middle kind of place. So as we look at this, as we look at this passage here, um, what's, kind of some, what's some of the takeaway from, from this passage? And, and the first one is, are, are you, first off, are you, are you in the fight? Are, are you in the fight here? If you are, um, don't grow weary in doing good. One of the things about being in the fight is oftentimes there's ups and there's downs, and it's too easy, which is why Paul is writing this. He's telling Timothy, it's easy. It's, it's easy to throw in the towel when things are tough. Don't grow weary in doing good, regardless of whether this is within the walls of church or whether this is within the walls of your home. You're, you're a husband seeking to love wife and kids, and, and it's not going as well as you can, but you're submitting yourself to, to, to the, the strength that comes through prayer and God's word, and maybe you're not getting the response that you want. Don't grow weary in doing good. Continue to strive forward and, and being obedient and faithful to your call as, as a man. Same thing for those of us that are, um, that are in, in uh, business situations or in ministry situations that are just not going the way that we want. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't throw in the towel. Don't hang up the phone. Continue to answer the call that has been placed on your life. Secondly, um, <clears throat> takeaway, how's your conscience? Are you in the process ever of evaluating your conscience? In some senses, we, we, we're very intentional about doing this when we celebrate communion together, evaluating our own lives. But one thing that I believe the, the uh, recovery community does so much better than the Christian community is doing that of self-evaluation uh, on a daily basis, looking at life and saying to self and saying to, life, to, our, to ourselves, is there any, you know, Psalms 139, is there any way in me, is there anything within me that needs to be addressed, that needs to be worked on? Uh, being disciplined at being, evaluating ourselves and, and making a confession and having that indicator in our life. And another way to do that simply too is just to, 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 to look at the scriptures and, and I think of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control against such things, there, there is no law. How is your conscience? Is your conscience becoming seared because of its exposure to, to lack of love, lack of godliness, exposure? I, I mean, frankly, just living in this culture that we live in, it's hard not to have a, somewhat of a seared conscience. 
but we're called to be gospel outposts. And so we have to remain diligent, remain diligent in our, in our, uh, our self-evaluation. And then thirdly, um, as you evaluate, you look at yourself, is there, is there a distance? If there is, um, and this is one thing I, don't, I can't give credit to who said this. It wasn't my original thought. But if, if there's distance between you and God, most likely it's not God's fault. But scripture's really clear. James 4.8, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. If there's distance between us and, and the Lord, we have to be intentional about drawing near to him. And the same thing too. If there's distance between us and other people, we have to be intentional and disciplined at drawing near to them well and making reconciliation a, a high priority in our life. Timothy's call was very clear. His call was that of being a pastor uh, to a church. Uh, and, and, and although this is written to Timothy, the, the principle is very true to us as well. We all are called as well. We're called to, to hold up the gospel of Christ in our everyday life. We have certainly responsibilities outside the walls of this church, and we have responsibilities inside the walls of these church. Too many, too many of us forget that we're in a battle, forget that we're in a war. Another quote that I can't give credit to this week that I read, but is that oftentimes um, the things in this life that we tend to get upset with and, and grovel, about, grovel over have so little significance to the reality of the reality of our, our battle and the faith that we're in and the illustration that this commentator had given was that it's, it's accustomed to a soldier that's out on a battlefield. There's bullets whizzing by. People are dying all around them. And they look down and they see some dirt on their pants and they start grumbling about the dirt on their pants. I mean, how silly is that? It has no significance to the big picture, especially with the war going on around and uh, there's so much more. Yeah, we have a little bit of dirt on our pants, um, maybe even more so than more so than that. But there is a there's a great fight, a great war, one that we get to fight with joy. Uh, not that we are walking around beating each other up and beating other people up. There's trolls that make their living out of doing those kinds of things. That's not what we're about. But we are definitely need to be sober about the fact that we have an enemy. He's got an offensive game plan, and his plan is to to deceive, to lie all he can. And to bring distance between us and other people, us and the Lord. And certainly, he wants relational and spiritual death for us. And I want to be a church of people that say, no, not here, not now, not anytime. But we're going to stand up. We're going to stand up for the cause of Christ. We're going to stand up for the cause of loving one another. For truth that's found in pure doctrine from God's word. That's our goal as a church. Um, I'd like to have you stand. The worship team is going to come up and close us out with an appropriate song, but let's, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, give us the insight as individuals in a church to be able to look and see if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way of everlasting. Lord, help us to have the, the discernment to, to know um, when when we're compromising, uh, compromising in areas that we should not be compromising. 
Lord, for those of us that are sitting here now that are just desensitized, just feel almost like I know I've been and you've exposed that my heart is just dead and I'm just kind of existing. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would, you would breathe life into um, a cold, those cold, stony hearts, that you would make transformation. And, and uh, Lord, we, we ask that you would do that to your glory, to your glory alone. I pray for comfort and strength for, for every one of us as we, as we go through. Help us never to forget the fact that we are in a battle and um, we fight this battle on our knees and uh, with the principles of your word guiding us in your Holy Spirit, um, being the wind in our sails. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we pray this in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.